so one of the privileges I get with my work is I get to go and visit other churches on occasion and, and see how they do things. Uh, and the church I was in last week was probably the most different I've done uh, probably ever, but it was really privileged just to see it. But it's, um, so I was down in London, and um, so the fastest growing probably church segment in probably the whole of the UK, but definitely in London, is what they call the black majority church. So places like Jesus House and a few of the other places. So I was down in Lewisham at this church. Um, and so a couple of things. If you think our worship is loud, man, that worship was loud. The babies in the church, they, they all wore ear defenders. So their little faces were like, because they had these ear defenders crushing and the worship was so loud. I spoke for 25 minutes. I was like the thing. And then the pastor gets up and he goes, thank you, Simon, because you, you spoke. I don't need to do as much this morning. He then spoke for another 45 minutes. So the whole service was two and a half hours and there were two back to back. So I did five hours of church service and at the end of it, I'm like, so it's kind of good to be back here. But it was also amazing just to see how people responded to it. You know, they worshipped, they responded, they sat there, they listened. So this morning, after I've spoken for 30 minutes, uh, Pastor Phil will get up and speak for 45 more minutes if you're all all right with that. So I'm not all right with that. I'm heading home. Uh, <clears throat> so this morning, we are starting this new series on um, Joshua chapter 1. Um, and it's just an amazing kind of passage. It's an amazing thing that we're going to be looking at. And I kind of want to give a little bit of an introduction to it, read out some of the scripture, and then get into kind of what I want to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, but as an introduction, what we're seeing is this movement into the time where they're going to take what they call the promised land. So this is the land of Cana, um, and it is the land that if you go back right to Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham leaves his family, and he's told to go to a land which he does not know where it is, he's just told to set off. And he visits the land that God would give his descendants. That's where he ends up in it. It's um, Gen um, Genesis chapter 12 that you can find the story of that. So this is the promised land because it has been promised to them. And there's a few characteristics about the promised land. So I'm not really going to kind of think about it. It's not really what I'm going to talk about this morning, but it does set the scene. So it's a land of promise. It's a thing that has been promised and I want you to think this morning, what is it this morning that you have been promised, that, that something to you that is a promise? And for, for us as Christians, it, it kind of centers around a few key areas. So again, as you look back, what has happened to the Israelites, they've come out of captivity in the land of Egypt. They've come on the journey through the desert to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. And for us, that often spiritually represents... Uh, the coming out of captivity of sin and death and into a life of victory and to a life of righteousness and living uh, a victory in that sense. So that's definitely something that's in there. It's a, a promise that we can live a life of victory and a life of holiness and righteousness. As much as that as well for churches and for Christians, the promised land is often where we're going as a people and as a church and it's the ministries we're moving into. It's the promises that God has got for us as churches and individuals that he's given us over our lives. And it's often as well, I believe as well, for us individually, the kind of things, the gifts that God has given us and the dreams and the desires of our hearts, the unique vision that God has given you with everything that you've got. So it's kind of all of those things. 
And it's that that we speak of, that there is a promised land before us. And so often as Christians, we kind of stop moving forward because we kind of dwell. And it is, it's an amazing kind of pictorial thing right from uh, going from Egypt through the Red Sea right into the promised land. Uh, and we just see this thing, this picture, this thing of, of what it can be like as a Christian as we set off from captivity. We can kind of camp out in the desert and stop moving forward. But quite often why we stop moving forward is we lose that vision. We lose sight of the promised land and the desire to take it. So it's a land of promise. It's a land of milk and honey. It's a land of goodness. It's a good place. It's not just a future. It's a future promise that has goodness attached to it. And why, why milk and honey? Well, milk and honey are good in themselves. They really are. You know, that's a good thing. It might not be the thing that inspires you to move forward. Place. I just really like milk and I just love honey. You know, maybe that's not what it is for you, but, it, but the, what it represents, what do milk and honey also represent? Well, actually, milk, how do you produce milk? It's from cattle. And what do you need to have cattle? Well, you need great amounts of land. You need, um, you need crops to be able to feed them, so there needs to be a, a kind of well-watered place, and it needs to be a safe place so you can raise that and have families and, and raise those things. So when you see milk, it's the end produce of a series of good things and those good things are a land that is safe that cattle can graze on that is fruitful it's not drought so it's a land of plenty because it can sustain cattle it is a good place and what is the end result where, where does honey come from it comes from a beautiful place it comes from pollen and flowers and bees pollinating that and producing the honey and again it speaks of those places it speaks of those things the promised land is not just a future place where we're heading into it has goodness attached to it because it has those things it is a fruitful place it is a safe place it's a place where people can dwell raise cattle cattle can be sustained and it produces those good end results of the milk and the honey so that is really something about the promised land. It's a promise of a future. It is goodness attached to it, milk and honey. But here's the other thing about the promised land for the Israelites as we're about to set off and look at Joshua. It is a land that is owned and it is promised, but it is not yet possessed. So it's a place that you're not yet in, but you are moving into. It is a not yet possessed place. It's a place that needs to be taken and it needs to be taken by force. It is not taken by a people camped out. It is taken by a warlike people who are willing to storm the gates and take the place that God has got for them. And here's the final bit about it, which is a really cool bit. It's also a land full of giants. So yeah, cool. It's not just a land to be taken. It is a land to be taken with huge, literally huge, ginormous opposition to our taking of the land. So that's really the, the scene setting of where we're going into. And I want to ask you in this thing as we kind of maybe dwell through Joshua in the next few uh, weeks and months as we go through these chapters that really I want you to be thinking about, it's not for me to preach on or to tell you, but what have you been promised? What is good about that place? Is it a place of the not yet? 
And what are the giants that maybe you are facing in your spiritual life, in your ministry, in your walk with God? What are those things? Because it's Joshua that will speak into it because it's Joshua and it's the people that follow Joshua. It's what I would call the Joshua generation that inherit the promises of God. And that's why we should be eager to kind of speak into this passage and to listen to it and be hungry for what goes on in it. So as I introduce that, I want to read out the first um, kind of portion of Joshua chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 just to start with us because it is this that now links into the taking of the promised land. And it starts like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, this good man, it says, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I am about to give to them. So again, it's the land of the not yet, but it is the land of the imminent. It is here, it's now, it's about to happen. About to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you Every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So I want to pause there in that first part of the passage and just talk a little bit about this. And as I look at Joshua chapter 1, I see four types of people. I see four groups of people. And I want to talk through each one of those through the passage this morning. And I believe that there's a little bit of all of us in each of these groups of people. And that actually there's the type of people we need to be, but we actually have characteristics of all of these people and groups of people. So I see two leaders in this passage and I see two generations. But the question I want to pose to you at the beginning is maybe a little bit controversial. I don't think it is when you understand it, but it could be controversial. I want to say this to you. I believe that there's types of people that God kind of grants the promises to. And there's types of people that don't inherit the promises of God. So there are. There's something about how we are and how we act and what we do that can be pleasing to God in the sense that he responds to who we are and how we do things and that unto that he grants the promised land and the promises of God. And that can feel a little bit controversial 
in kind of a Christian setting. And I think part of that is probably our focus on grace and righteousness. So we sang the amazing um, kind of modern day hymn, you know, to, to he, he has the, what is it, the words, to look on me, um, to look on him and pardon me. So the verse around our forgiveness and our sin. And I want to say this to you just so it's clarified right up front when I talk about God responding to who we are. There is nothing I can do to earn my righteousness before God. It is completely given to me because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And nothing I do before God when I stand in his presence covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and there because of him. There is nothing I can do to be more pleasing in the sight of God than that. And that is the bottom line on that. However, there is still something about how I operate in my life that can either be pleasing unto God or maybe not pleasing. And I might explain a little bit around that. That something about how we are and the type of person we are moves God towards us to say, until that I'm going to grant the promised land. It's that kind of person. And there's two sets of people in this passage that are absent from it because he can't grant the promises to them. So let's kind of get into that so it doesn't sound maybe too controversial as we go through. So the first person that is in this passage that actually starts in chapter um, verse 1 that is mentioned is Moses, the great leader. And it starts with this amazing kind of passing of the baton between the previous uh, chapters and books and what God has been doing and this passing of the spiritual baton of leadership unto Joshua. But we can't move on until we talk about Moses because it says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. It's after his death that the promised land can be taken. It's after this event that he has passed on that now something else can happen. And you see, Moses did not himself inherit the promised land and the job of leading the people into the promised land. And it's a really difficult thing for us to kind of grapple with if you know your scripture, because if you know anything about Moses, this is not a man of dishonor. He is highly honored by God. It's at the ascension, isn't it, that Elijah and Moses appear and that he is one of God's um, kind of, is just up there. I don't know how the ranking of the saints go. If you had top trump cards, he'd probably be quite high up there. Um, but, you know, this is the guy that as much as we remember about Moses, this is the Moses of the burning bush. This is the Moses that God would appear to in the burning bush and speak to him. This is the Moses that would lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt that would cause the parting of the Red Sea. The Moses that received the Ten Commandments, but not just received the Ten Commandments, spent so much time with God that they said his face glowed because he saw the glory of God, that God would even give him a glimpse of himself as he passed by the mountain. This is the Moses that did not inherit the promised land and get to enter into the promised land. It even says in Numbers 12 verse 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. This man was a standout follower of God and did not enter the promised land. 
So what was his error? What can we learn about his characteristic, the thing that kind of precluded him from inheriting that promise and leading the people into the promised land? Well, his error, and we find it in Numbers 20, and I'm going to read it out and, and talk about it, but is he got frustrated with the people of Israel. So it was one of their times when they were uh, hungry and thirsty and they needed water to drink. The Israelites, as they were one, were complaining. And um, Moses and Aaron go to God and go, what are we going to do? And God gives the instruction. He says, touch the rock and water will come out of it to give, give water to the Israelites. But what happens instead is that Moses and Aaron go back and they make this fatal error. They strike the rock. And they say these words, we will make water come out for you to drink. And this is what God says back to them in Numbers 20 verse 12. The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and says, Because you did not believe me to hallow me or to proclaim my name holy in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So what could we say that Moses' error was, the thing that stopped him receiving the promises of God? Because if you want to be a person that receives the promised land, that place of goodness flowing with milk and honey, that place of victory over our sin, that place of ministry where we're moving into, wherever it is that you are going, the gifts and things that God has got for you, I want to learn from this. Well, you could say that the things that Moses got wrong in that passage were that he didn't do it God's way and that he didn't give glory to God. So particularly, he did it in his way, but he didn't give glory to God. He said, we will make water come out of this rock for you. They almost kind of claimed the miracle of God for themselves. Almost, they said, we will do this. Instead of proclaiming his name as holy and glorifying God, they themselves did it. And this is what I want to suggest to you this morning. That one type of person that can never inherit the promised land is a person that wants to do things their own way and won't give God the glory for what he's about to do. Because that if you, as we go through Joshua, you will see that it's God that gives the victory, it's God that gives the victory, it's the God that gives the victory and it's him that does it in his own way. I mean, you look at Jericho, who would do it that way? You know, when we come to that passage. So if you want to be a person that will take the promised land, you need to be a person that is willing to do it God's way and to give him all the glory for the miracles that do happen. It is that heart of receptivity, it is that posture that is the posture of a person that God will go, I'm going to lead you into the promised land. Someone that is supple and willing to go with him. And we see that Moses ends... That he dies, but he does not get to lead the people into the promised land. And it's still something amazing. As I said, Moses is still uh, represented and lifted up as an amazing man of God. And yet God says, I'm not going to grant this final bit of goodness to you because of that posture, because of what happened. But what he does do for Moses is that he takes him up onto a mountain as he dies to be able to at least view 
the promised land. And I don't believe that God was kind of torturing him in that. I don't believe he was doing that to, to torture him. Although I do believe Moses would have had a pang as he saw it and gone, that, that's where we could be. That was the original plan. That is what God had for me. But I think God was granting him saying, I'm going to show you the goodness that I am going to lead your people into them. Because Moses did love his people. He did want to see them in that place. But this is my heart and this is the lesson that we need to also learn from Moses is I believe there's people that come to the end of their spiritual walk with God and as they as God takes them up onto that mountainside and says I love you I'm going to see you on that day in heaven I'm going to be there with you that he kind of gives them a glimpse of the what could have been. And I do believe that that can be like that for us spiritually. That as we look back on our lives, as we look at what has been, that God says to us sometimes, this is what could have been. This was my plan, but I couldn't do it because you didn't have that posture and that heart and that, that space to do what I really wanted to do. By the way, if you really want to understand this, I'm sure that God's original plan was to take the people out of Israel with Moses. They were going to cross that desert quite speedily and get to the promised land. That was the intention. And yet we see the fact that that does not happen. So what can we learn from Moses as the first type of person? It's a posture of a person that takes the promised land is one who says, I will do things your way, God, and I'm going to give you the glory for all the things that happen. God says, I can work with that. That's the kind of person that I want to take forward. But I also don't want to be a person that as I get to the end of my life and God says, here, here is what maybe we could have done together. Here's what could have happened if you would have done those things. So that's Moses. I'm going to talk about the second group of people. And they're actually not referenced in the passage at all. And I've just talked a little bit about them. And they're what I would call the missing or the lost generation. And these are the Israelites that followed Moses out of captivity from Egypt into the desert. But this is a generation that had to pass away before they could inherit the promised land. So what can we learn about these guys? Again, these people were a people of privilege. They'd seen the parting of the Red Sea. They'd seen God actually deliver the Ten Commandments. They'd seen the, the, the cloud and they'd seen the pillar of fire. They'd seen amazing things. And yet they were also a people who grumbled in the desert, not trusting God to protect them from enemies, worried about provision of food and water and wanting to go back to Egypt and having a yearning to go back to their previous sinful life and captivity rather than pressing into the promises of God. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but again, you see in this passage, a people who don't inherit the promised land are a people who get stuck in the land in between, neither fully happy with the promised land that they're going into and neither fully letting go of all that they have come out of. And so many of us as Christians kind of get stuck in the land in between, kind of yearning for where we were and not remembering the captivity that we were in and the lack that we had in that place. But that's not really the crime or the sin or the thing that God held against them and the reason that they weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. You know what their biggest crime was? And this is the moment that God had with them and said, the promised land is not for you. And again, this is where we need to learn our lesson. When was it? 
Hopefully you know if you know your scripture well enough. It was when Moses sent out the spies to spy out the land and to see what it was like so they could take the promised land. And what did they come back in? This is all in Deuteronomy chapter 1. They came back with a report of the land and there were two reports that came. We had the group of Israelites that came back and said, we've seen the land, and as God promised, it is a good place, it is a land of promise, and it is flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants in that place. There are giants in there, and we can't take that land. And then what did you get? You had Joshua and Caleb, who we'll hear more about later in Joshua, We had those two guys who came back and went, you have never seen such a good place. We need to get going tomorrow. This place is exciting. It's amazing for us. It's going to be the best home for us. We've got to get there. And they just ignored the giants. And why did they ignore the giants? Because their eyes were on God. And this is the judgment that then uh, God puts down on the lost generation. He says this to them. When the Lord heard what you said... He was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it and I will give him and his descendants the land he has set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And Joshua should be in there as well, but he is somewhere in the passage. I just didn't get that verse. That's weird. Anyway, but Joshua as well as Caleb. Um, But that was what God's judgment was on it. And as I was talking at the beginning of this thing, we have a promised land as an individual, as churches. As we move forward, it is a place with goodness attached to it. But there is a type of people that inherit that goodness. And I want to challenge us all this morning that I believe there's a bit of all of us in each one of these types of people. And I want us to learn from this type of people. Because as God reveals the good things and the future things to us, and, and you look at your life, I promise you this, it will always have those two characteristics. It will have goodness attached to it, but there will be giants in there. And God is looking, he is looking, his eyes are upon you for your response in that moment. And it will come before you as he reveals what he's got for you, as you push into him and say, Lord, what is that promised land? What is the victory? What is that kingdom ministry? Um, A lot of you know, I've had this personal experience recently. So a lot of you know that I'm preparing to move to the States in about six months to take the ministry I work for here in Bradford and pioneer it out there. Um, and I'm telling you, as I'm, so I'm, I'm kind of in the midst of this scouting. I've been doing a few visits out to the States to look at the ground out there. And I'm telling you, I've, I've seen this stuff. I have seen the goodness that is out there. I have seen the barbecue restaurants. Man, it is a land flown with milk, honey, and barbecue restaurants. It is a good place, I'm telling you that. But I have also seen the giants. So we're trying to start, by the way, no English thing ever ever works in the States. Tesco have tried it. They failed. Nothing works out there. So it's hard to go that way. Um, The church is humongous. The size of the nation is humongous. 330 million people. The time it will take us to do this thing. Uh, But I work in debt counseling, credit counseling. And I was out there earlier this year and I went to a meeting with a guy in Boston who works in credit counseling. And at the end of this meeting, I am telling you, I walked out of there and went, 
I just don't know if we can even do this thing. So he told me this tale. He said, uh, Simon, so I want to tell you what's happened in, in what we call credit counseling out here in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, there were 1,100 firms in the United States of America offering credit counseling. And then the industry blew up, the federal government regulated, and it's now the hardest thing to do in the whole of the United States. There's now 90 of us left out of 1,100. In the last decade, no one has entered this market. And it's hard because of this reason, this reason, this reason, and this reason. And as I walked out of that thing, I've actually already given up my job and they've hired someone else to do it. I'm like, right, I've just given up my job to do this, to move to this. The barbecue is good, but God, flipping heck, how on earth are we going to do this thing? And I had one of my own little kind of Joshua, maybe Caleb moments. And it's, it might be a little bit sad, but I got in my car and I had to drive to New York, this kind of four-hour drive. And I put on the radio, and it's that bad American rock that are on there. And it was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And the first song that came on the radio was his song where it says, well, I won't back down. And this is it. And it says, the first thing says, well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. And I knew that in that moment, I had to do that Joshua thing. Because I could either be a Joshua, and I could look at God and see how big God is. Or I could look at the problems and go, there be giants in that land, and I can't take them on. But I'm telling you, as you look at your future and the things that God has got for you, he will reveal and it will always have those two characteristics. That's how you know it's a thing of God. Because it is a promise of goodness yet to come for your spiritual walk and for kingdom ministries and whatever that you're pushing into and the gifts that he's given to you. It will have the good things that attach to it, but there will be giants to overcome and take over. And that's how you know, God, maybe I'm onto something. And it's at that moment he looks at your response and says are your eyes on me or are they on the giants and I want to be a man that always responds to those things and it always takes a moment you've always got to have that little moment in your car where you go oh what the heck do I do here but then maybe that song will start playing in the background well I won't back down no I won't back down you can stand me up at the gates of hell but I won't back down so we've learned two different types of people here. We've got a, a first type of person that says, God, I'm willing to do it your way, and I'm willing to give you all the glory. And when you show me the promised land and you show me the goodness that we're pushing into, I'm going to keep my eyes on you, and I'm not going to look at the challenges and the giants and the difficulties. I'm going to keep my eyes on the goodness that you have promised us in our Christian walk, and I'm going to put my eyes on you. And again, that's why we sung, Oh God of angel armies, who goes before me, who's got my back, that is who we serve. And it's at this moment we move then on to Joshua in this passage. This is a person who wanted more, who didn't see the giants. And this is a person that was therefore prepared to step out. So what does it take to be a Joshua person? What does it take to be a Joshua? And I believe we can all have a characteristic of a Joshua well, here's the first characteristic of a Joshua, and it's in verse 3. I will give you every place where you set your foot. So here's the first characteristic of a Joshua, an inheritor of the promised land. It's someone who's willing to move. 
See, I think a lot of people get to the stage where I talked about where you see that vision of the promised land, you see that goodness that God has got for you, you see the challenges, but your eyes are on God, and yet a bunch of us never get up. Again, my boss says, if our blessed backsides and actually do something. And I want to put this before you. What is it that God is calling you to do? So I'm telling you this. The promises of God are often only attached to a people that take the first step. We're going to see it when we come to the crossing of the River Jordan. It's a people that take a step. And if we look back to Abraham who set all this going, and it's again in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, it's him that stepped out and God says to him, I'm going to take you to a land which you do not know. And he didn't tell him where the end destination was, he just said set out. And I believe that for us as a Joshua generation, as a people of Joshua, if we want to inherit the promised land, sometimes God won't tell us where the end destination is, but he is telling us to step out. And that's the first thing I want to ask you this morning. Where is God asking you to move and to step out? But it's as we do that, that the rest of the promises of Joshua then all of a sudden make sense. Because to a bunch of people who never move off their blessed backsides and never do anything, there's not much call to be bold and courageous. There's not much call uh, call to be strong. And why is that? Well, I'm telling you this, it's as you take the step into the land of the giants, it's as you take that step into the land of the challenges and the opposition that fear can come in. It's fear that God is talking about in this passage. It is fear that is the greatest enemy of the promised land. It is fear upon churches of what will happen if we take this bold step. It's fear on you of what will happen if I move into this ministry or move into this thing that God is calling me to do. He has laid on my heart or I want to move more into the things of God. It is fear that will stop us moving. And it's to that that God speaks in boldness and courage and here's the thing about fear and here's the thing about courage courage is not the absence of fear so fear should never be the indicator of whether you should do something in God or not in fact fear is probably the best indicator that you're on the right track so again sometimes the things that we do in our Christian walk that we take as indicators that we should back down are often the things that mean we're on the right track So if you're in a land where you think, God, this is probably a good place, but there's a lot of giants and there's a lot of opposition, it might be an indicator that you're into the right thing. If you feel that fear and think, God, I'm not sure if I'm the person called to do it, that's where God steps in and says, that's exactly the right moment because I'm going to speak boldness and courage into your situation. It is an attitude of facing or dealing with something that is difficult or dangerous without withdrawing from it. What are you facing right now that you want to run away from? God is calling you to stand your ground and not back down. So why does God speak in this boldness and courage into Joshua? And I want to tell you this this morning. It is not false bravado. We as Christians are not a people of false bravado. It is not self-belief. Joshua in no sense was looking at himself. And it is not belief in others. I've seen many fall. I've seen many disappoint other people. I will disappoint you. No, 
This is a promise from God. It is God speaking in boldness and courage to his situation, saying no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life because as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is a boldness and courage that is not based on self-belief. It is not based on self-provado and image. And it is not based on other people's strength. It is a boldness and courage that God speaks into a bunch of people and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that is the boldness and courage that God calls us to walk into the promised land with. And it is that person that is an inheritor of the, of the promised land and the goodness of God. And our part in this, it goes on in the passage, is to obey his word, to make sure that we stick close by him, that we don't depart from the book of the law, where it goes on in verse 7. Be careful to obey all the law with my servant Moses gave to you. And I believe in this, we've got this beautiful combination of what it takes to take the promised land. And I think sometimes in churches as Christians, we get the focus either on one or the other. We're either a bunch of people who just focus on the kind of the book of the law and kind of dwelling in the word of God and going to another Bible study and another prayer meeting and another spiritual thing and and going, God might move if we just keep reading the Bible and preaching on it. And God's saying to that bunch of people, no, you need to to take a step out into the promised land because it's doing that and taking the step out that will lead to the inheriting of the promised land and just the same there's a bunch of people that are all about the stepping out and the doing but man their prayer life and their life in God and their dwelling in God and their holiness is probably on shaky ground and it's on that ground that God calls us to move into the things that he's got for us it's a life that is based solely on him not departing from the book of the law but is also one that is willing to get up after to the Bible study and to take a step of faith. That is a person that inherits the promised land. I'm going to go on to the final group of people. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them uh, so that I'm not doing a a three-hour sermon as I promised I wouldn't. But it goes on and it's in uh, verse, uh, it's in the final verses. And this is what I call the Joshua generation. And again, there's something for us to learn in each group of people. And Joshua speaks to them in verse 10. He says, so Joshua ordered the officers of the people go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land. The Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Georgian, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites, you to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your land, which, the Moses, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards sunrise." So what is it about a Joshua generation? I'll finish off with the last little bit of the passage at the end. The thing about a Joshua generation is that not only was there a leader called Joshua, but there were a group of people that were willing to follow him into the land of the giants and into inheriting it. And there's two special bits about this passage. And the first is this. 
They were a group of people that were willing to follow their leaders into battle. And that is the stark difference between this generation of Israelites and the previous generation of Israelites. And I guess I want to say it, I don't really want to dwell on it or kind of beat you guys up on it. But as we move forward as Sunbridge Road Mission, we're moving forward into a new land of building. We're moving forward with new leadership. We've got a new worker coming on board. We've got uh, all sorts of things in the offering. But if we're to move forward as a church, we need to make sure that we're leading right in God, making the right steps of faith, doing the right things. But we need a group of people that answer back to us, as it says in verse 16. As they answer back, they go, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord, your God, be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against you, and your word and does not obey it whatever they command them will be put to death only be strong and courageous and I believe that in this this is the power of a church that moves forward in unity in God I believe there is a key of a church that moves forward into the promised land that has got God has got for them that there is the key you've got a leadership that is in tune with God that is bold and courageous that has their eyes on the promised land and at the same time, they have a people and a congregation that follow them that say, wherever God is leading you, we will obey and we will follow you into that. And I think that's something maybe for us to work on in God to make sure we are in those places. But I believe that in that is a church that will inherit the promised land. And then my final thought is this. I've got so much that you could pick out of this passage. Is that there's a group of people that were spoken to in that passage that had actually already got their land. So as God apportioned it, they didn't need to take it because they'd already, already inherited that portion of the geography. And to them he says, it's not good enough that you've received your own promised land. You've got to be there for other people to receive their promised land. And this is the final point I'll make. There's a bunch of people in this church that have lived an amazing Christian life in God. You've done amazing things. You've done ministries. You've done leadership. You've done business. You've had successful marriages. You've raised children. You've uh, beaten abuse and you've beaten addiction and you've beaten all sorts of things and you have got in some senses to parts of your promised land already and you're sat here and you need to testify and praise God that he is good and he has taken you to your promised land but to you he also speaks and says who around you can you impart something for who can you fight on behalf of in the places where you have been given your victory in the places where you've seen your promised land, where can you support someone else and fight for them? Where can you take your marriage and the lessons you've learned and speak into someone else's marriage? Where can you take your leadership experience and support someone else in their leadership journey so they can move on into the promised land and the things that God has got for them? Where can you take what God has given you where you have seen your victory and currently you're sat back and resting in your promised land and God's saying it ain't good enough? You've got something I want you to inspire someone else in because until we're all in our promised land, we should not be a people who rest. Wow, we could go on, we could go on, but I refuse to go on and to go on because I'm seeing some faces. So I want to sum up. There's a type of people that inherit the promised land and we see those four in here. We see a Moses who didn't do things God way in that particular instance and glorify God we need to be a people who are willing to do things God's way and always give him the glory 
We need to be a people that when we see the goodness of God and alongside it see the challenge, we keep our eyes on God. We need to be a people who are willing to then take that step of faith and move out into it. And it's into that that fear will rush in. But then the boldness of courage of God will overwhelm that fear. And we need to be a church and a people that never rest in our own promised land, but say it's not good enough for me, but that which I have, I'm going to now use you and call you into the promised land. And to be a people who are always looking out and going, what can I impart unto you? And we need to be a church based in unity that when we as a leadership seeking God and we're getting it right and in that right place that we as a congregation move forward into it and say where you lead we will follow. And if we do those things, if we are those types of people, I am telling you there is a land of milk and honey, there is a land of promise that we are not yet occupying and yet we can possess. And I want to be a person that calls us forward into the possession and the possessing of the goodness that God has got for us. It's 12 o'clock. I will finish there. Amen. Thank you, God, for the promises that you take a weak bunch of people, but you say if we keep our eyes on you, you are the mighty God. You are the one that brings the victory, that you have got that goodness for us that is undeserved, but you want to see us in that, Lord. Would you call us forward into that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're finished there, so we have tea and coffee out in the um, atrium. It's not called that. What do you call it? That, the lounge. Just the lounge. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, if you want prayer, if you want to speak to anyone about what we've spoken to this morning, uh, we can pray down here. But I encourage you as you go out, speak to someone about what God has touched you uh, with this morning. Amen. Have a great day.